Chapter 11 of the Diamond Cross Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Murray. The Diamond Cross Mystery by Chester K. Steele. Chapter 11. No Alimony. Shag! exclaimed the Colonel. Yes, sir? We're going fishing tomorrow. Is we, Colonel? Then I expect you want to get... Get everything ready, yes. We'll go again to that place where Miss Mason found me. There's as good fish in that stream as any I didn't catch, and I want to try my luck. Yes, sir, Colonel. But excuse me, didn't you figure on doing some detecting and giving up fishing? And Shag, with the freedom of an old servant, stood looking at his master as if not quite understanding the new twist the affairs had taken. That's all right, Shag. You do as I tell you. I'm going off fishing. I may not catch anything. I may not want to after I get there, but for a quiet place to think, give me a fishing excursion every time. And I've got to do some tall thinking now. Get ready, Shag. Yes, sir, Colonel. And, having put himself in a fair way, as he'd hoped, to solve some of the problems connected with the Darcy case, Colonel Ashley went down to police headquarters to learn more facts in the connection with the murder of the East Indian. Carol and Thong were there and if they did not exactly welcome the colonel as a kindred spirit, they at least accorded him the respect due a fellow craftsman in the peculiar line where talent may be found most unexpectedly. And Carol and Thong, who, with other headquarters men, now knew the colonel's identity, were not above learning a trick or two, even if they had to take them from the book of the rival, for they recognized that the colonel would be against them and the prosecutor's detective when it came to the trial of James Darcy. Well, boys, "'What's this I hear about another murder?' asked Colonel Ashley when he passed over some of his cigars, the flavor of which the two headquarters men had been longing to taste again. "'Some Dago had his head busted in,' remarked Thong. "'It isn't our case, so we don't know much about it.' "'No? Who has it?' "'Pincus and Donovan, haven't they, Carol?' "'Yep.' Carol was too much engaged in watching the blue smoke curl lazily upward from his cigar just then to say more. Like to talk with them about it? went on Thong in friendlier tones. If they're here, yes. I think they just came in, said Thong, bringing his feet down with a bang from the table on which he had them elevated. Are you going to work on that case, Colonel? Oh, no, I was just interested, as Singa Futt was one concerned in Miss Darcy's murder. But he hadn't any more to do with it, Colonel, than that cat. And Carol pointed to the headquarters cat, which was sleeping near the radiator for the day had turned cold and steam was on in the place. Perhaps not, admitted Colonel Ashley, but there are some peculiar coincidences, and if you don't mind, I'd like to see what I can find out about them. Go as far as you like, Colonel, returned Thong, needlessly generous. We've got our man, and that's all we want. The other isn't our case. Oh, Donovan, he called, as he saw a fellow sleuth passing through the outer room. Here's someone to see you and the presentation was quickly and informally made. The two men had seen each other before, but had not spoken. Glad to know you, Colonel Ashley, said Donovan. I've read a lot about you. You're on the Darcy case, they tell me. In a way, yes. I'm working in the interest of the young man. But I hear you have another murder. Yes, but it's so plain there's no interest in it for you. All we wanted to do, Pincus and me, is to lay our hands on the Dago that done it and got away. We'll get him, too, before many days. 
he's the kind of fellow that can't hide very well unless he goes and kills himself, and he may do that. How did it happen? And is there any truth in the newspaper story about the same watch that was found in Mrs. Darcy's hand being found in the hand of the dead man? Yes, that part's true enough, but that's all there is to it. It's just one of them coincidences, like. Singafut got back his watch after the prosecutor decided he didn't need it for evidence. There wasn't nothing that Singa had to do with the Darcy case anyhow, and he seemed awful anxious to get back that watch, so it was turned over to him. But did he really kill his partner? Surest thing, you know. Busted his head in with a heavy candlestick, one of a pair. I've got him here, look. And opening the closet where he temporarily kept his collection of evidence, Donovan took out a pair of heavy bronze candlesticks in the form of hooded cobras. That's the one did the business, said the headquarters detective, showing one candlestick with something dark and unpleasant on the heavier end. Gad, explained the colonel. The very pair I was going to buy. What? You buy? cried Donovan. Look here, Colonel. Do you know anything about this? And the detective's professional instincts got the upper hand of his friendliness. Not the least in the world. Not as much as you do, was the cool answer. I happened to see those candlesticks in the window of Singafut's shop the other day, and I made up my mind to buy them when I had a chance. Now, I'm afraid I won't. But how did it happen? Oh, well, there isn't much of a story to it. And Donovan's voice showed his disappointment. But I don't know whether that's his first or his last name. Anyhow, he had a partner named Sher Ali. No one knows much about Ali, for he came here just recently. Anyhow, he and Futt didn't get along very well, it seems. Neighbors often heard him scrapping a lot. And this afternoon they went at it again hot and heavy. Then things quieted down, and nobody heard anything more. Toward dark, a man went in to buy a lamp. He found the place without a light in it, stumbled over something on the floor, and there was Ali's body, with the head busted in and this heavy candlestick near it. He raised the howl right off, and Pingus and I got there as soon as we could. Of course, Foot was gone, but we'll get him. Then you think he did it? Sure he did. Who else? And the watch was in Ali's hand? Sure, held so tight we could hardly get it out. In fact, it was so tight that he's cut his palm grabbing hold of it. Maybe the fight was about who owned the watch, for the Dagos talked in their foreign lingo and none of the neighbors could tell what they were saying. I see. And the watch? Have you it? Yes, it's here. Going yet, too. Hear it tick? And Donovan held open the door of his closet, from the place in which hung old coats, caps, and other garments and from the shelf on which a collection of gruesome weapons came an insistent ticking. That's the watch, announced the headquarters detective, reaching in for it. Going yet, see? And he held it out to Colonel Ashley. Somewhat to the surprise of Donovan, the military detective accepted the timepiece on his open palm, and so gingerly that it caused Donovan to remark. You're not as squeamish as all that, are you, just because it was in a dead man's hands and a woman's? Oh, not at all, was the quick answer. But, as a matter of fact, these East Indians are often carriers of bubonic plague, you know, and it's very contagious. Of course, neither Sheer Ali nor Singafut may have had the germs about them, but I'm a bit squeamish when it comes to contagious diseases of that nature, and I wouldn't like to scratch myself on that watch. Scratch yourself? On a watch? And Donovan's voice was plainly skeptical. Yes, it may have some rough edges on it, and I've read enough about germs to know the danger. 
I'd advise you to be careful. Ha! laughed Donovan shortly. I should worry about that. The watch don't figure in the case. Except maybe they quarreled over who owned it. Colonel Ashley said nothing. He was carefully examining the watch, which he still held in the palm of his hand. Holding it as carefully as though it indeed might be laden with germs, the least touch of which against a tiny scratch might produce death. Quite a curiosity, said the colonel at length. If you don't mind, I should like to examine this a bit. You can take it away, said Donovan. I may need it as evidence when we get Mr. Futt, or whatever the Dago's name is. Oh, no, I wouldn't think of taking it away. I'll look at it here. It seems to be a very old timepiece, one of the first made smaller than the old Nuremberg eggs, I fancy. Quite an interesting study. Watches. Donovan, ever take it up? And as the colonel questioned, he was looking at the Indian timepiece under a magnifying glass he took from his pocket. Who? Me? Study watches? I should say not. Keeps me busy enough here without that. Yes, went on the colonel musingly. This is an old timer. The first watches, you know, Donovan, were really small clocks. And some were so much like clocks that the folks who carried them had to hang them around their belts instead of carrying them in their pockets. That was way back in the 15th century. Before the big wind in Ireland, suggested Thong, with a nod at his Irish compatriot. Slightly laughed the colonel. But, all joking aside, this is quite a wonderful piece of work. I shouldn't be surprised, but what it dated back to the time of Queen Elizabeth. Though it has been repaired and remodeled since then, to make it more up-to-date, probably new works put in it. Queen Elizabeth was very fond of watches and clocks, and her friends, knowing that, used to present her with beautiful specimens. Some of the watches of her day were made in the form of crosses, purses, little books, and even skulls. Pity this one wasn't made that way. Like a skull, mused Carol. Seeing it's been in on two deaths, and no one knows how many somewhere else, that's right, agreed the colonel, as he continued to move his magnifying glass over the surface of the still-ticking watch, and a close observer might have observed that he did not touch his bare fingers to the timepiece, but poked it about and touched it here and there with the end of a lead pencil. Very interesting, observed the colonel, as he passed the watch back to Donovan, still using only the flat, open palm of his hand on which to rest it. Very interesting. And Donovan... Take a friend's advice, and don't be too free with that watch. Too free with it? asked the surprised detective. Yes. Don't scratch yourself on it, whatever you do. Why not? Not that I'm likely to, for I never heard of being scratched by a watch. But why not? Simply because this watch... But at that moment, the doorman of the police headquarters stuck his head in Scotland Yard. As the patrolman designated the inner sanctum where the detectives had their rooms, and called, Donovan. Hello, answered the sleuth. Someone out here to see you. All right, be there in a second. Excuse me, he murmured to the colonel. Be back in a minute. But it was less time than that he came returning on the run, and his face showed excitement. What's up? asked Carol. Singa foot, was the panting answer. Friend of mine just tipped me off where I can get him. See you later and making sure that his blackjack and revolver were in his pockets, Donovan hurried out, followed by the colonel, whose hand had loosely closed over the ticking watch, which, unseen, went out with him. Later that night, Singa Fun, a silent, shrieking, and somewhat pathetic figure, slept in a cell at police headquarters. Donovan, 
on the information brought by a stool pigeon, had made the arrest and was jubilant thereat. Colonel Ashley, with Shag at the proper distance in the background, and with Jay Kenneth as his invited guest, was sitting on the bank of a little stream, fishing, or, at any rate, he was somewhat idly using a rod and line to aid him in his thoughts. Following his visit to police headquarters and his return to the hotel, he called Kenneth on the telephone and arranged to spend a quiet day with him in the fields near the stream. I want to talk over Darcy's case with you, the colonel had said, and the two had talked, had thought, had talked again, and now were silent for a time. What are the chances of getting him off legally, if we go at it from a negative standpoint, asked the colonel. I mean, Mr. Kenneth, if we call upon the prosecution to make out their best case, which they can do only by circumstantial evidence, and then put our man on the stand to deny everything, to have him tell about the noise in the night, about the curious sensation he experienced, about the possibility of chloroform, call witnesses as to his good character, and so on. What are the chances? Rather a hypothetical question, Colonel, but I should say it might be a 50-50 proposition. At best, he would get off with a Scotch verdict of not proven, but he doesn't want that, nor do I. And you? I don't want it either, but I want to know just where we stand. Now I know. We've got to prove James Darcy innocent by establishing the fact that someone else killed his cousin. Exactly. And can it be done? It can, and I'm going to do it. But I need to do a little more smoking out first. Now I want to think. If you'll excuse me, I'll pretend I'm fishing, and I may catch something. In fact, I have a feeling that I'll land my fish. And perhaps you have some other problems that may be clarified by a dallying along the stream. Ah, there's nothing like the philosophy of my friend Isaac Walton. I'd recommend him to you instead of Blackstone. Thanks, laughed Kenneth. I'm not altogether unfamiliar with a complete angler. And you are right. I have a little problem on my hands. What is it? Perhaps I can help you. The old adage of two heads, you know. Yes, it still holds good. Well, the question I'm trying to solve is why did she say no alimony? No alimony, replied the colonel, puzzled. Yes, just that. As you may have guessed, it's a divorce case I've just finished. And so quietly that it hasn't become public property yet, when it does, it will create a sensation. No alimony, eh? I suppose the lady... There is a lady in it, of course, questioned the colonel. Of course, as is usual in a divorce case. And there's no reason you shouldn't know. It's Mrs. Larch, wife of Langbert Larch, the wealthy hotel owner. She has just been granted, on my application before the vice-chancellor, a separation from her husband, but she refused to accept alimony. And for the life of me, with all Larch's wealth, I can't see why. That's my problem, Colonel. End of chapter 11